0: We'll hear argument next in case 171484, uh, Azar versus
1: Alina Health Services. Mr. Needler, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 1395HH did not require CMS to go through notice and comment rulemaking before it could furnish its calculation of one component – of a hospital's reimbursement to the uh, contractors that perform the initial determination of reimbursement for the agency. That calculation was not binding on the agency, the courts, or respondents, and it could be challenged on administrative appeal, as, in fact, respondents did here.
2: I have a a sort of problem with this, and and I know you say that. but. I don't know how you take this outside of being a policy, meaning it's applying to every single provider uniformly. I don't know the basis that you could have an individual adjudication. And what would happen? The Board would look at it and say, we're not going to listen, even though we're required to listen, to the agency's position. We're gonna tell them they're wrong. If one case tells you the agency is wrong, does that case then become the new policy? Or, or are you... I'm a little lost as to how this is not a agency policy, a statement of policy. Several
1: points, Justice Sotomayor. And the the first is that we are relying on the operative language in 1395 HH, whether it's called whether the issuance is called a policy or a requirement or whatever the agency calls it. It is only it only triggers notice and comment rulemaking if it establishes or changes a substantive legal standard. And well, that that's, is what si- I'm,
2: uh, that's what I'm having a problem with. It's every single provider is going to be given a fraction that incorporates your policy, and that binds what they're going to get. No, it, because it, they have to use that fraction in the claims they made
1: against you. It, it only governs – what the contractor does, the contractor is just like an agency employee making determinations on behalf of the agency at the first step. When, from when the you,
2: from the contractor, from the agency, they're only going to get the fraction as you told the contractor to
1: calculate it. Only if they don't appeal, and and uh, as as we pointed, I, point I, I
2: just don't understand what difference it means. It, it means. I mean, even a regulation or a rule um, may have legal meaning only until it's accepted. But even a rule can be challenged later on appeal. The grounds for that challenge might be different. But I can go into court and say it's ultra-virus. I can go into court and say um, it's not supported by the statute. It's not binding in in any meaningful way, other than that's what the agency is going to do.
1: Well, if, uh, if I if I may, in our view, 1395hh codifies for the Medicare program uh, what this court referred to in Chrysler Corporation as the central distinction in the APA. Uh, between substantive and interpretive rules. And this Court in Well, the
2: problem I have is that the provision adds something. It's not just rule regulation. It's statement of policy. And it seems to suggest to me that there are some interpretive rules that are encompassed by that. Now, which ones is the open question. But it does seem to suggest that it's broader than the APA ever was. Because the APA
1: only talks about rules. Well, uh, um, again, several, point, several points about that. This Court's decision in Guernsey Memorial Hospital, which described the general APA standards, distinguished between substantive rules and interpretive rules. And the interpretive rule there was something in the Provider Reimbursement Manual, which just as here – Bound the contractor, but could be changed or could be challenged Mr. and you, set aside what did, on appeal.
2: Why didn't Congress just say, "This is like the APA"? Why does it ha- change the language at all? Well, I have to give some meaning different than the APA to Congress's express choice of a different articulation of the standard.
1: Well, uh, first of all, when, when Congress first uh, enacted the uh, provisions or amended the provisions in the rulemaking in 1986, it, it said certain regulation, regulations have to go through notice and comment. It didn't define regulation at that point, but the conference report said this does not require notice and comment rulemaking for interpretive rules or other things uh, that are not now subject to that requirement. Then in 1987, Congress uh, revisited the, um, uh, the provision. And if you look at page 34 of our brief, um we, we set out the House version, the, the version that was passed by the House, and then uh, – and contrast that to the version that was finally enacted. The House House version said no rule requirement or other statement of policy that has or may have a significant effect on the payment for services um, can go into effect unless promulgated through notice and comment rulemaking. That was changed uh, in conference, and the enacted language – Kept everything but substituted for that italicized language the phrase that has, uh, that, uh, excuse me, establishes or changes a substantive legal standard. Is, Is
3: this right? I mean, it's very complicated what you're saying. I thought it was quite simple that for a long time in Medicare they didn't have to follow the APA, all right? Then Congress passes a statute and says in this area you do. So the reason it says no rule, requirement, or other statement of policy, is they have certain policy statements in mind, certain requirements in mind, and certain rules in mind, namely those that establish or change a substantive legal standard. And And basically what they're doing is saying to the agency, don't run around this. We're not going to permit a runaround where what you do is you change the legal standard and you call what you're doing a statement of policy. So don't run around us, my friend. You follow the APA. Now, that is what I took out of your brief, but have I got that right?
1: That, that, is, exactly, that is exactly our position. And so why didn't you say that was the answer to it, just said We'll I, 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 I tried we'll to start do that. down that path, but I, yeah, but let that.
2: Me, let me stop you. If that's what Congress intended, it could have stopped in 1986, no, they didn't because that. in 1986 it had done what you said, but something, and you read the House report. The House bill. The House bill was leading them to believe that a different standard was necessary because they changed it. They had the APA standard in 1986. They chose intentionally to alter it by altering it in 87. And you look at the rejection of the House bill as something that helps you, but I'm not sure how, because it tells me they are significantly concerned about things that make major changes, substantive changes, in how people are being
1: paid. And and, and here's here's what matters there. As as I pointed out, Congress substituted has or may have a significant effect. Maybe that would sweep in ordinary statements of policy or interpretive rules. But the the conference committee in Congress enacted uh, something that that, uh, refers only to substantive legal standards. And the committee report said this language reflects recent court rulings. The recent court rulings could only be APA rulings because there was nothing else that would have governed uh, Medicare. And in fact, as we point out in our brief, there was an American Hospital Association case decided, I think, just a matter of several weeks before the conference committee uh, that, that was very similar to this, and it involved instructions affecting peer review organizations, which are contractors that operate on behalf of HHS, under the Medicare program. And the Court there drew a sharp distinction between substantive rules, on the one hand, and interpretive and procedural rules, on the other hand. the answer is that the,
3: it didn't do what it's trying to do in 1986. What it talked about was any regulation which could have included interpretive regulations. I would have found out, because I read the House reports. But those who think they're irrelevant might not have understood the statute, and moreover, there was an argument going on in the D.C. Circuit about what is a legislative rule. Is it just important versus unimportant? Or is it legally binding versus non-legally binding, no matter how unimportant? All right? That's what they're thinking about. And it's confused. And the 1987 statute clarifies it.
1: Yes. Am I right or not Yes, we agree. But but but, uh, 1986, we think, makes that clear, too. Not only the conference report, which specifically says interpretive rules are not covered. In fact, nothing's covered that wasn't already covered by the APA. But the the, the term regulation, as used, uh, itself connotes uh, a substantive rule, a, a legislative-type rule. Be- people may talk about interpretive rules. You don't usually talk about interpretive regulations. Mr.
4: Neither. this is where I get stuck, and, and I'm, 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 I'm focusing more on the language of the statute, I confess, uh, than, than the history, which I've, I've read but I've, I find uh, confused, as Justice Breyer suggests. So a- A2 says that any rule requirement or other statement of policy that establishes a substantive legal change has to go through Informal rulemaking, not even formal rulemaking. Uh, And so really the question all boils down to what does substantive mean, I think, as I understand it. And the import of that in the government's view is that it's binding as opposed to an interpretive rule, borrowing language from the APA. And your friend on the other side reads substantive, as it's often read elsewhere in the law, as material or affecting private rights as opposed to procedural. And both seem to me pretty plausible interpretations of that word. And and the strikes against you, as I see it, from the text of the statute, are a few. First, the statute speaks of statements of policy as being substantive. But, of course, in APA language, statements of policy are interpretive. They're not substantive. They don't bind the agency in any reasonable sense. Um, It speaks of substantive changes in an interpretive rule, in E., And, of course, that's like a a complete incoherent statement in APA language, but entirely coherent in the language of the law if substantive means material. And then, of course, the statute also adopts the APA good faith, uh, the good cause exception to to, to rulemaking uh, verbatim. And it clearly doesn't adopt the substantive interpretive language verbatim which is right next door in in the APA. I mean, it's the next section. Um, And you're asking us to think that Congress recreated that section in this statute through this rather oblique mechanism. So there, I put my cards on the table. Tell me where I've gone wrong.
1: Okay, uh, starting with the good cause exception, uh, as, as we say, in our view, the statute only applies to substantive or legislative rules and the good cause exception under the APA applies to things that have to go through notice and comment rulemaking, which are substantive rules. So it was necessary to incorporate that. But in, in our view, the text of the provision, which refers only to substantive legal standards, does not include interpretive rules to begin with, or procedural rules for that matter. So there is no need to have an express exception because the operative text uh, excludes it. Uh, with respect to um, – the substantive change in regulations under E1. It does not say substantive legal standard, which is the operative language in in A2. It says a substantive change, and we think substantive means in substance as opposed to perhaps form or wording or something like that. But
5: then you would be using the word substantive in two different ways in two very nearby provisions, wouldn't well, you?
1: But we but we think that they that they. Um, Have a different effect, but even but even even if you said an interpretive rule can address something of substance, it's for example, if it's interpreting a statute or a regulation, it may have some effect. Uh, as a substantive matter, but it is not binding. And what this Court has said in in Chrysler Corporation, said it in Guernsey Memorial Hospital, which deals with this very program, a substantive rule is one that has the force and effect of law. An interpretive rule does not. It simply explains the agency's construction of the statutes and rules uh, that it implements. Mr. Neelhoff,
4: there's a lot of words there, but I'm not sure there's an answer uh, to Justice Kagan's question, so I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to try again because it's very important to me uh, as well. Uh, aren't you using the word substantive in two different senses, first in the APA's, what I call the APA sense in A, and then what I'll call the other traditional legal sense in E? Um, so you're conceding – to your colleague on the other side, that it is used in that sense, at least an e, I believe.
1: Well, it uh, it doesn't say substantive rule or substantive, substantive standard. It which says would be
4: substantive the, change to an interpretive rule, right, which is a nonsense under your view, I but, believe. But
1: su- substantive there, we, we think in substance uh, is what. It, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm serious. Is what it refers to. It's not in form. It's meaningful. Uh, but beyond that, the, the subsequent uh, words used in the section refer to regulations, manual instructions, interpretive rules, statements of policy. It is distinguishing regulations, which are the things that have to go through notice and comment under A, from the subsequent things, manual instructions, interpretive rules. Again, a lot of words,
4: I. but I think at the end of the day, you are agreeing that Congress is using that word in two different senses, Right.
1: We, we think the phrase substantive change here is different from substantive legal standard, which is, okay. we think is the same as substantive, is, um, uh, substantive rule. And I'm sorry, I,
5: th- I forgot the third point you asked me. Statement okay. of policy, because that's hanging me up too. Okay.
1: Uh, state, statement of policy, again, frankly, I think that is an artifact of the House version of the, of the bill, if you go back to page 34 uh it read off no rule requirement or other statement of policy that has or may have a significant effect it's possible that a statement of policy or an interpretive rule could have a significant effect on the on this one does. interpretation but it doesn't have the force of law
5: so you're you're agreeing it's incoherent as written it's just that when the language was different it was not incoherent well uh, as written it's incoherent because a statement of policy is by definition not a substantive rule. Yes, but I
1: think, it, I think it serves the purpose that Justice Breyer was identifying and basically saying, we don't care what you call it, whether you call it a rule, whether you call it a requirement, whether you call it a statement of policy. A rule, after all, includes interpretive rules. So no matter what you call it, a rule, a requirement, or a statement of policy, uh, it, uh, it cover, it's only covered if it uh, would have uh, — establish or change a substantive legal standard. And, in fact, the conference report on the 1987 uh, amendment specifically uh, stresses that it only covers substantive legal standards. What
4: would be the point of that, though, if a statement of policy couldn't have operative legal effect on anyone anyway?
1: Well, again, if 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 that was the — I mean, a
4: party would simply say, that's just a statement of policy. Have a nice day.
1: Well, but but if but if it if it purports to, as the language the court used in Chrysler, to establish a substantive legal standard, it's not just a statement of policy. It's called a statement of policy. Well, then it's not a statement. Then
4: the argument would be, it's not a statement of policy,
1: right? right? That. That that is true, but that but okay. that that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean it's not it's not a statement of policy within the precise meaning of well, the. They a- don't yeah. want to
3: run around, but e right. they don't run around it by calling it a statement of policy when you're right. changing the. Yes, subject. but it's and easy. and I have a different question, which is e, which is a word because they are using, uh, the word substantive change there possibly, in a different sense. So, so, so uh, I, I agree with that. And I, but I thought that E has something to do that's not involved here. Uh, e is a, a kind of codification of a different common law rule of administrative law, that when you do something retroactively that's important, Mr. Agency, you better have a reason. You better look at why you've changed it. Right. If you're changing policy, go look at it and explain it to us, something right. this Court has said many, many times. Right. And I thought that's what E is about. Yes, it's a different right. subject.
1: That, that is, that's correct in our view, and it talks about a substantive change in regulations, again, which are the things that have to go through notice and comment rule uh, rulemaking under subsection A, And then goes on to say manual instructions, interpretive rules, statements of policy or guidelines, which do not have the force and effect of law. They are not substantive rules or in the language here, they do not establish or change substantive uh, uh, legal standards. Uh, and it may, so it distinguishes right, right in there the, reg, the sort of regulations that A is talking about, and these these non-binding sorts of things that, that uh, either way they shouldn't be made retroactive. If they're interpretive, the interpretation shouldn't be made retroactive unless it, it uh, goes through, uh, unless the agency made may. It may,
5: it may I take it. you back, Mr. Needler, to um, one of Justice Sotomayor's original questions, which is just what, on your theory, this provision ends up actually accomplishing? Because as I understand the, 19, the, the year, 1986, the, the prior year's provision, Congress essentially already said for Medicare substantive rules, you have to go through notice and comment. And I understand how this would have been different if it was the original version of the thing. The or may have a significant effect. But as written, on your theory, it seems to just repeat the 1986 command, doesn't it? Well, again,
1: the House would have done something broader in 1987, and I and I think that the I think the court should.
5: But are you it. saying I, I want to make sure I understand this? Are you saying that the compromise was essentially to just repeat the 1986 provision? Yes, I mean, I think,
1: I think that is, it was carried forward. And, and the, again, the conference committee report stresses that only things that establish or change a substantive legal standard. And that the, the, word substantive in the rulemaking context has a, has a long history in administrative law under the APA. It also, the distinct, that very distinction is drawn in Black's law dictionary, as we explain in our... I mean, it is a little bit group. odd.
5: Don't you agree, Mr. Nita? Because if the compromise was not to do anything beyond 1986, then you would think that people would just say, okay, let's not do it. Not put in a new, a new, a new statute saying precisely the same thing. Well, the,
1: the, the bill was in conference, in conference at that point, and there were several other things that were in the bill at that point. This, is, this change was not the only one. The bill was in conference, and they, the conference committee decided that something should be enacted rather than nothing done uh, at all. But as to this provision, um, uh, we think that it—it's um, th- th- entirely
4: superfluous. I—I
1: I, I don't. It think does it's, nothing. No, I don't think it's superfluous. It does it, nothing new. Well, it—it it, substitutes. It, it, it elaborates. It elaborates. But
4: substantively, the- sorry. No, it—it it, it, it does nothing new.
1: It—it—it it, it, it reiterates through the. It use reiterates. Of the-
4: okay, it reiterates what's already the law. Well, it was not
1: in the statute in 1986. The can statute I, referred to can regulation. I you, can
4: I take you back just to, to one other problem I have? You, you want us to, 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 to view the statute as very carefully using APA terminology when it comes to substantive. But when it comes to statements of policy, you want us to ignore the fact that uh, what, what the APA, how it treats them, and say even faux statements of policy that are really rules and requirements and regulations—that's what it's aiming at. Isn't that a problem?
1: No, I don't. I don't think so because the, uh, the statement of policy is in the opening clause, which refers to rules, which could include interpretive rules, requirement, or statement of policy. Those are descriptions of the when, kind of agency. When issuance. is ever
2: a statement of policy binding? Pardon me. Meaning, when is a statement? Of, if it's not a rule or regulation, if it's just a statement of policy. When is it ever binding, as you've defined binding? I, uh, Isn't policy something that can be challenged? It,
1: it, it, it is, but I think it's important for the Court to focus on the On the operative language, which is whether it changes, establishes or changes a substantive legal standard. That's what Congress enacted. I'd also like to point out what the consequences of this for the Medicare program are. As, as this court has pointed out in Guernsey Memorial Hospital and other cases, the Medicare program has, uh, you know, hundreds of pages of statute, probably thousands of pages of regulations, but the Court has recognized that that can't answer all questions that come up. And and the Court in Guernsey recognized the importance of interpretive materials, like in that case a provision in the Provider Reimbursement Manual. There are similar manuals governing the program integrity for hospitals and doctors and and whatnot. There are still uh, reimbursement issues that that are fleshed out. But I
2: look at the subsequent history of this in in the D.C. Circuit, and I look at Clarion Health West, and your fears there are overstated. A fairly significant change was held not to be encompassed by um, this provision um, because it really was just following the statute. This is filling a gap in the statute. I don't know what else is clearly more a – Policy than that when you're filling in a gap as opposed to interpreting a statute, and that seems to be the distinction the DCir- D.C. Circuit is applying.
1: Well, the Clarion did not go to the substantive provisions for reimbursement. It had to do with uh, a procedure for various um, That's uh, screening. That's my
2: point. That's my point. Yes, because but not but everything it is going to. Come it's
1: not it. everything, but, it, but, it, but it, it certainly would subject to notice and comment r- rulemaking a broad swath of what has never been done. This is, well, this the, is 30 uh, years I mean, later, in uh, HHS and on,
4: on, on that, though, um, I, I don't doubt it's more convenient for the government to proceed through adjudication of an individual case and announce a new rule that applies to the whole of society without inviting comment and providing notice to everyone affected. Surely, I, I get that that's easier and preferable, certainly more efficient. But couldn't Congress make rationally an alternative decision that, Informal rulemaking, not even formal rulemaking, that's gone by the boards, but just informal. Notice and comment to affected parties in something as significant as changing the formula for Medicare for all Medicare providers nationwide. Maybe they should have 60 days to at least throw in their comments. Well, first
1: of all, the agency has – Tried to go through notice and comment rulemaking twice on this. It did, it did it in 2004 when the issue was brought to its attention. It did it in 2013. It recognizes that. But what it did here was, was not, not establish a binding provision that has the force and effect of law, but simply furnish fractions to the contractors who are performing calculations at the very first stage Mr. of the, of the process. Could I
5: very quickly ask you, given Clarion Health, what consequences are you afraid of?
1: Uh, afraid of the, again the broad swath of, of manual provisions that I mean that that really just dealt with procedures. I mean, I, in in one respect, you could look at it as as recognizing the procedures. Procedural rules are not covered by notice and comment under the APA. A procedure about how contractors are supposed to evaluate uh, certain situations without changing substantive standards uh, uh, isn't isn't covered. Uh, and that's our you know when it comes to interpretive rules. That's our position, because they, they explain the agency's own interpretation, but it's the statute that governs, not and this is not a regulation that establishes a substantive legal standard on its own terms, if I may reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Mr. Needler.
6: Mr Shah? Mr Chief Justice, and may it please the court. By making the legal determination to count Part C days as Part A entitled days in the Medicare fraction, the agency's 2014 issuance reduced the payment right of hospitals nationwide by, and this is according to the agency's own estimate, billions of dollars. But that it's, is, not, it's not binding at all. Well, in Your Honor. Of, in interim calculation? I, I think it's binding in every normal sense of the word. Let me give you two responses. First, let me address your – concern on binding as a factual matter and then tell you why it's legally irrelevant. First, as a factual matter, they call it just an internal instruction. The fact is the contractors are the ones who make the final payment determination. How this regime works is the hospitals submit a cost report form that has all the data on it. The contractors then use the fractions from the agency and they then compute the final adjustment that the hospital is owed. That is then a final binding payment determination. That's it. That's how much the hospitals owe, unless the hospitals could do an administrative appeal or they can sue in court. If you don't do the administrative appeal or sue in court, there's no doubt about it. It's in the reg. That is your final determination of your legal right to payment. Now, but doesn't here, it
0: make sense if you've got, I, I don't know exactly, I mean, how many of these interim calculations do they have?
6: Uh Well, when you're talking about interim calculations for the dish adjustment there's only two calculations there's the medicaid Medicare fraction and the Medicaid fraction that is it and and they compute that and then they give you a number for that adjustment I think, well, but, but but I, I
0: mean how many every year or how whatever the payment schedule is my, my understanding is they were using this to tell you how to calculate what you owe but not till the I don't know, the final bill comes in
6: oh okay so just to clarify here so this is in the context of a final payment determination. Right. So this happens once a year. At the end of the year, uh, the hospital, will, after the year is closed, they'll file a cost report form, and the agency will then use that data along with the Medicare fraction that the agency has given them and give them a final total for that year. So it's used to, uh, as a payment total for the end of the year, and then that Medicare fraction is used. Just the Medicare fraction is then used to compute the interim payments for the next year until the next fractions are issued. So all of that is binding, uh, however that word is used. Uh, Obviously, it's not in the statute. But the hospitals are stuck with that. That's their payment determination. Their only recourse, of course, is to file an administrative appeal or sue in court. They did that here, and here's what the agency's own board said. We are bound by the agency's action. That is, we lack the legal authority to look behind the policy and adjudicate this. The agency's own board says they can't do that. So for,
3: for the and, and then you, they're wrong because the SG is telling us that they do have that. Power. Well, okay. and so therefore your complaint is uh, to go to a court and say they didn't do what they admit they were supposed to do. Well, which Justice is that Breyer, they treat the substantive matter.
6: Justice Breyer, the government made that exact argument to the district court, and the district court found that. that the that's of both rights. of these things that. seem
3: to me to be somewhat side issues. I understand why they give color to the problem, and I accept that. But the basic problem to me is whether or not this statute, in using words like uh, uh, policy and so forth, is saying agency. When you have a legislative rule, which is defined as a rule that establishes or changes a legal, substantive legal standard, when you have that kind of rule and don't hide it under a statement of policy or some other way, when it's doing that, use notice and comment now. Well, if you aren't doing that, well, you can use notice and comment. You're more free to do what you want. Now, that's basically their argument right. that has considerable importance even beyond this area. And so I'd like you at some, you know, to get well, your view on that.
6: Okay. So, Your Honor, that, that argument makes no sense because it goes—it doesn't go any further than the 1986 enactment that we've already discussed. And even under the APA, if you call a legislative rule a ham sandwich, that doesn't get you out of the notice and comment requirement if you call it an interpretive rule or a statement of policy. There is an exception for those, but if it's actually a legislative rule, you have to go through notice and well, comment. Well, yes, so the you know
3: that, yeah, and I know that. But there are many, many people, perhaps, in the United States, and including many who work in agencies, well, Honor, who that- don't know that. And so where it said in 1986, the word regulation, and then you read the House report, yes. then we arrive at the same conclusion that already said it. But many people don't read House reports. And that word regulation might not explain itself, and therefore they reenact 1987's law, in order to put the House report, in essence, in the law, and they show exactly what they mean. Okay? That's the argument on the other side. couple
6: responses. If you want to ignore the text and look at the House report, I would suggest we look at the 1987 House report, which is the one that led to Section A2. And what it says there is, we tried this in 1986. It turns out that the agency, and this is a quote, with growing frequency is enacting end quote is enacting significant policies without going through not, uh, notice and comment notwithstanding our one thousand nine hundred and eighty six enactment and in fact it, the next sentence says in fact it 's doing these things through things like manual instructions and so what we are going to do is enact a further requirement that even if it is a rule whatever type, interpretive or legislative, a requirement or a statement of policy. As long as it's actually affecting a standard-changing effect on Medicare providers or beneficiaries, their legal rights, then they have to go through notice and comment. And, and let me point out, let's get back to the fatal flaw, which the government has still not addressed in its statutory construction, other than saying that Congress's use of the word statement of policy is an artifact, that essentially Congress made a mistake when they enacted this statute, because it didn't change, it didn't strike everything out except legislative rule. The statute here says any rule, requirement, or statement of policy. Now, it's not an artifact. A statement of policy, this is the government's construction. Only things that have the force of law can have a standard, uh, can affect a substantive legal standard. Well, categorically, as the government says on page 16 of its reply brief, a statement of policy under decades of APA law categorically lacks the force of law. So Congress has now enacted a statute that says any rule requirement or statement of policy can trigger notice and comment, except you could never have a statement of policy that triggers a notice of comment. Both sides agree on that. You are now reading significant words out of a statute that is not how statutory construction works. Now, the government says, oh, you should just read this provision as simply codifying the pre-existing distinction between substantive and interpretive rules in the APA, the APA's interpretive rule exception. Well, first of all, the term substantive legal standard that they use in A2 appears nowhere in the APA or in any APA cases. So it would be an exceedingly extraordinarily roundabout way for Congress to try to adopt the interpretive rule exception, which is sitting in the books, instead to introduce new language, which has never been used in the APA, to duplicate the interpretive rule in section. Instead of introducing that novel concept, if all that's what the, what Congress wanted to do in A2, mm-hmm. it could have simply cross-referenced the interpretive rule exception in the APA, just like it cross-referenced the neighboring good cause exception, or it could have simply said, any substantive rule requires notice and comment. That would have been a lot simpler, and yet, obviously, Congress didn't do that. It did almost the opposite. It it took, it expressly includes any rule requirement or statement of policy, which, if you compare it to the interpretive rule exception in the APA, that expressly carves out any interpretive rule or statement Could of policy. Could
2: you give meaning to legal, substantive legal? Sure, so. Um, because that, that's where the strongest argument I think your adversary makes, which is generally we think of legal as binding. So, if you can deal with that, I think everything sure. else you're saying falls into place.
6: Sure, so a substantive legal standard, how we, how we would view it is a legal standard is obviously a term that's used in law all the time. It's this legal test, right? And so here the legal standard in their issuance is whether Part A entitled days cover Part C days, whether they cover days that are not covered under paid um, or covered under Part A. So that's uh, in substantive legal standard. The legal standard is the test. Here we obviously have a test. That's what the whole 2014 issuance is doing, defining when Part C days are covered. So that's your legal standard. Now, the question is what work is substantive doing. Well, then the work substantive doing it, it's doing it in contravention to procedural. And there is no doubt here, everyone on both sides agree, that in that sense, substantive versus procedural, what the agency did here has a substantive effect. It's a, an effect to, towards billions of dollars It reduces the right of recovery or reimbursement for these hospitals. Now, what the government says, they point to this uh, D.C. Circuit case called AHA v. Bowen. And they say Congress made this change in the statutory language and added the phrase substantive legal standard to reflect that ruling. Well, first of all, when Congress made that change, it said we are clarifying the statute. It did not say we are doing a wholesale change in the statute, which is what the government's position is today at oral argument. It said it's clarifying the statute. Second point, that AHA v. Bowen case actually – Substantive versus procedural is also a distinction in the APA. There are substantive rules, there are interpretive rules, and there are procedural rules. And what H.A.V. Bowen says is procedural rules as opposed to substantive and interpretive rules also lack notice and comment. And it draws the distinction between substantive and procedural. This is on pages 1045 to 1047 of H.A.V. Bowen. So even if we assume that Congress had AHA v. Bowen in mind. Congress is silent about that in the House report, but I'm willing to take the government at face value. Do you and, have any
5: other case that that might be when the conference report says we're reflecting recent cases? Is there anything else other than Bowen that you uh, think it might that, be That's the, I mean, we've
6: looked. There really isn't anything that's on point of, of the ones that we could find in that time frame. Bowen is obviously the one that the government focuses on, and we're happy to focus on that because the core of Bowen is distinguishing a procedural rule Things like enforcement policies, auditing requirements on contractors, how often you need the contractor has to go and check the books of the hospital, those sort of things, it's distinguishing them from substantive and interpretive rules. And so in, in, if that's what Congress was trying to do, at that makes perfect sense. We agree that A2 excludes procedural rules, from its ambit, it says any rule, requirement, or statement of policy that alters a substantive legal standard. So what's off the table are like the rules in Clarion, things that have to do with enforcement policies, enforcement priorities, anything that's procedural in nature is off the table. So it's completely consistent. Congress used words that make sense. They departed from the APA, and it's completely consistent with the legislative history. Now, if no, I — The yes. practice.
3: Yes, And the reason the practical is relevant is you make a very coherent argument for one view, that at one time the D.C. Circuit waffled between, that a legislative rule was an important rule. And the other side of it is, no, it might or might not be, it is a legally binding rule. That was Davis, and the D.C. Circuit tried your approach, but then went back. And the reason was practical. That once you start to say, as you're reading this statute, that what they're talking about are important rules, you see, and that's why they put in not just rules, but statements of policy, etc. Once you do, you open the door to agency after agency, and at least here with this statute, saying, what in heaven's name is that? You get into arguments about everything, every word of the manual, and if they avoid the, that, by applying this statute to everything arguably important in every manual, they will be here till Christmas come. And and moreover, they will have to make decisions in advance that they really don't understand until later. And your clients, so they might be happy with this case, may not be so happy with a few of the others that take 19 years to go through. I'm exaggerating. But you right. see the practical problem.
6: Uh, no. And you yes. don't see it? Or I, I, I do see your I, I see your concern. Answer. But yeah. here's why your concern is misplaced here. And let me give you three clear reasons why. And these, these are important. First, you, we've already talked about the Clarion decision. There's one D.C. Circuit decision that actually applies the decision here that they say is going to uh, cause serious problems for the Administration of Medicare Act. The D.C. Circuit made clear they're laying down a line, and that line is we're going to take everything that has anything to do with enforcement priorities, um, auditing, anything like that. So a large swath of manual-type instructions, that was a manual instruction in Clarion off the table. The second point. In its brief, the government focuses on the provider reimbursement manual. They say, oh, virtually all of this is going to require notice and comment and, and and raise some of the concerns. Well, the government still has not provided a single example from that provider reimbursement manual. So we took a look at that provider reimbursement manual. It's about 6,000 pages long. The last 5,000 pages of it are procedural instructions on how to fill out the cost reimbursement form. It's instructions to providers. That's kind of like an exceedingly complicated tax return. And so the last 5,000, and by the way, of those last 5,000 pages, a lot of those are obsolete because they don't pull out the old instructions. It tells you to add line 20 to 21 to get to line 22. Does
3: this statute apply only to provider manuals? Or does it provide, say, let's say to 320 or 240 million Americans or 120 million Americans who get all kinds of things from Medicare? Well, Your Honor. Perhaps thousands of hospitals and thousands of services. How does, if the statute's on just provider, you have a good point, but is it? Well,
6: the problem that the, Government points to are these manuals, and what I'm telling you no, is- No, and I'm the pointing manuals, to a different problem. Okay, I'm pointing
3: but, to a question so here, of whether this is limited to provider manuals.
6: So here's, here's, well, it's limited to the terms of the statute. It has to be a rule requirement statement of policy that changes or alters a substantive legal standard affecting one of the three categories of things. Right, right? Right to payment.
3: That? Oh. You, you explained away the, the last 5,000 pages yes. of the manual, but yes.
6: what about okay. the first 1,000? So the, the, the first the — first, uh, the, the remaining 980 pages. Of that, 40 percent are from before 1987. This A2's effective date applies to any, uh, anything promulgated after 1987. So that, that's off the table. That leaves you your roughly 400 pages, Justice Alito. Of those, we went page by page through those 400 pages — all of about thir- — except for about 35 of those pages apply to the prior uh, cost reimbursement regime. That was the regime of how Medicare used to do those things, uh, and those require detailed instructions. Now, however, the vast, vast majority of providers are governed by the prospective payment system. Only about 35 pages apply to those. Now, even if — 35 pages worth of stuff needed to be done through notice and comment, although I'm quite sure the government come up with all sorts of arguments why those 35 pages don't fall under A2. But even if you did, and here, Justice Breyer, this should address your concern better than anything I've said so far. There is an annual prospective payment system rulemaking that the statute requires when it made this change from reasonable cost reimbursement to this new regime to which there are only 35 pages applicable, That annual prospective payment rulemaking is hundreds of pages long, and the agency already puts everything governing prospective payment systems that has a substantive effect into that rulemaking. In fact, 16 times before this case, it adjusted the treatment of certain categories of days through the prospective payment system. That's a prospective we'll payment manual,
3: but read this. No, this it says it manual. governs the scope of benefits. Yes, and so... Not just, and the eligibility right. of individuals to furnish or receive services right. or benefits. So suddenly reading that, I think it governs medicine and oh. health care provided 80 million people or 100 sure. million well,
6: people. Your Honor, a couple of responses. Am I First right or all, wrong? A, First, it, it would cover it if it falls under the terms of the statute. But here's why that doesn't create a workability problem. And not even the government has argued that. And here's why. First of all... Uh all, a lot of that stuff is already done through rulemaking, just like the prospective payment system rulemaking. That's one of many, many annual rulemakings that the agency does. Hundreds of pages along includes all of the stuff that we have in here. There's no burden to that. And by the way, those rulemakings don't take 19 years. Justice Breyer, we went through and averaged them. It's in the appendix to our cert opposition brief. They take, on average, 102 days. Uh, to put through an agency rulemaking on all of this stuff. Now, to to address your other question, a lot of that stuff is done through regulation. A lot of that stuff, the stuff that you're talking about, is this is this drug or treatment covered to the thousands of people who might submit a Medicare claim? That's all done through national coverage determinations, local determinations, and then those are all adjudications. There are thousands of those that are done every day where the agency, a contractor, gets a Medicare claim. And that is just mind-run. There is a, regu- there is a rule on it. I apply the rule. Is this drug covered? Yes or no. That doesn't implicate A2.
2: Do you have any idea why this change wasn't put through the ordinary rulemaking notice? And-
6: well, yes, Your Honor, because they tried. They did in 2004. They did this through notice and comment rulemaking, or tried to do it. I now notice-
2: forgotten why was that rebuttal. Right. So I remember the 2013, yes. but I don't remember. the
6: Right. So what happened is uh, they did the uh, uh, proposed rulemaking in 2003, which said, "Look, we want to codify our longstanding." Um, policy and practice of excluding Part C days from the Medicare fraction. That's our position as to how you should do this. Then in 2004, they did a 180-degree turn, but did not do any further notice and comment, and they issued it as a final rule to include the Part C days. The D.C. Circuit, in a precursor to this case, what we call a line of one in the briefs, said that's a logical outgrowth failure because you've now flipped your longstanding policy, without any notice and comment. So they tried to do it through notice and comment, but because they got rejected because of their d- defect in that process, they then came uh, to these, uh, They then then they did the 2013 rulemaking, Justice Sotomayor, uh, that you're talking about, but of course that's only going to apply prospectively. So then they were stuck. While that Alina one litigation was going on, between 2005 to 2013, they had those years uh, that were not covered by their new rule because that had been invalidated for the logical outgrowth failure and was not covered by the 2013 rule, which only operated prospectively. So rather than doing a proper rulemaking, they simply announced these on a website. They posted them on their website and said, now we are doing exactly the same thing we were told that we tried to do in the 2004 final rule but was vacated by the D.C. Circuit. So that's the answer.
0: Well, I guess the the way the government puts it is they decided not to proceed through rulemaking, but to proceed through adjudication.
6: Well, Your Honor, as the DC Circuit said, uh, this looks nothing like an adjudication. This policy that they introduced on their website of including, uh, Part C days in the Medicare fraction, that applies to every hospital nationwide without exception, it has prospective effect. It's a big adjudication. <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, I think what d- distinguishes the adjudication from the rulemaking is, does it have general applicability? That's the definition in the APA. And this, as the D.C. Circuit said in its opinion, and in fact as the government's counsel in the D.C. Circuit oral argument conceded, when asked at oral argument, doesn't this policy have effect to every single hospital in the na- nationwide? And the answer is yes, it does. And not only that, it's prospective because these fractions are used, again, for every hospital nationwide to calculate their interim payments for the intervening year until the new fractions come out. Well, but. So th- this looks it, to nothing like an adjudication. Well, it,
0: I guess, again, I mean, we can hear on rebuttal, but, I mean, it's an adjudication where they're doing what you'd like to see people do in adjudication, which is apply the same rules to similarly situated parties. Well. There just happens to be a lot of them.
6: Right. Well, well that, that would be fine. But you can't issue a, a, a policy that changes how you were treating it um, and, and have it have prospective effect uh, for every hospital nationwide without complying with the terms of A2, which says if you do any rule, requirement, or statement of policy, you can't just give it a label that says we're doing adjudication. This has every effect of a rule, requirement, or statement of policy in that that treatment of Part C days, that is going to decide the Medicare reimbursement amount, their legal entitlement to reimbursement for every hospital so nationwide. So you, you're
0: saying this is not something that could have been done through adjudication?
6: Well, Your Honor, uh, not in the, the way — The
0: agency of, could not choose adjudication as a means of establishing this policy?
6: Not as a means of establishing it nationwide for every hospital nationwide. And the government has said that when they would do these things, they apply the same rule — to each hospital. So no, if you're going to do something like this, then it, you could call it an adjudication, that's fine, but you have to go through notice and comment when you're going to be changing a substantive legal standard that applies to them. And so they can't, uh, they can't now label this as an adjudication. Now, again, this is somewhat of a, uh, 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 of a theoretical question in this case, because as the D.C. even the district court, which ruled in front of the government, in favor of the government, rejected their claim that this was an adjudication and said this bears all the hallmarks uh, of a rule. If there are no further questions, I'm happy to sit down.
1: Thank you, counsel. Uh, four minutes, Mr. Meadler. Several things, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, uh, subsection E, by the way, was enacted at a later time, and so its text doesn't necessarily shed light on what Congress did in 1987. The term rule in the lead-in to, uh, uh, subsection A2 includes statements of policy, so there is some redundancy or some, uh, superfluous there anyway, no matter, no matter how you read it, so it is, uh, it is, uh, imprecise. Um, The conference committee report uh, in 1987, I want to stress this, again says recent court rulings, those could only have been APA rulings. And, in fact, I I take my friend to acknowledge that the American Hospital Association case was the leading case, and uh, that case discussed the distinction between substantive rules and both interpretive rules and procedural rules, not just the one. And as we point out on page 11 of our reply brief, it did it in terms that are echoed in the text of, of – uh, HH itself, it, it says uh, the APA's notice and comment requirement applies only to substantive rules that create law, which goes to Justice Sotomayor's point about what does legal standard mean, creates law and, a, quote, establish a standard of conduct which has the force of law. Those That language is very close to what what is in the statute as enacted. Um, th- this is really the last program in which one would expect Congress to have created such a transformation of administrative law, uh, as uh, respondents are proposing here, that interpretive rules, such as manuals, and the Provider Reimbursement Manual is not the only manual. Why,
4: why is that? Um, in Chenery two, this Court did allow the government to engage in retroactive adjudications that affect substantive rights. but expected that it would be a rare thing that 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 would happen um, and that most of these kinds of actions would happen through rulemaking. This, of course, is uh, the the government's claiming the power to affect every Medicare provider in the country retroactively
1: through these seriatim adjudications. Why is
4: is this extraordinary? The
1: Court addressed that very situation in Guernsey Memorial Hospital in which it said some things can be done by Regulations, some things can be done by manuals, and some things are done by adjudication. And the agency and this is the teaching of Vermont Yankee the agency has to have the flexibility uh, to choose. And this does have the character of, a, of an adjudication, uh, going to the Chief Justice's question. Yes, they sent it out to uh, every contractor performing on behalf of every uh, individual hospital. But that contractor's determination for that for each of those hospitals is an individual adjudication. And the, the application of this fraction in that individual adjudication is not binding. It, it can be reversed on appeal to the board or can in court. Can you
2: point to anything in the history of the 86 bill or 87 bill that leads substance to your claim that Congress was not, in fact, concerned about substantive changes in uh, formulas like this one being done through rulemaking as opposed to adjudication. Well, well, I thought in all the history I read that what was motivating them is the agency's change of policy of doing less through rulemaking. They wanted more or the same, but not less.
1: what Congress was driving at, and this comes from the word substantive, which has an established meaning in administrative law and the APA, was things that have the force and effect of law, not things that are simply interpretive. That's the very distinction this Court drew in mortgage bankers and in Guernsey Memorial Hospital arising under this this, uh, same program.
0: Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.